Hello, this is Holly McCormick, and you're listening to The First Deal Show. Welcome to The First Deal Show with your host, Caroline with a K. On this show, we're talking about investors' first investment property. Join me for a trip down memory lane as we hear the good, bad, and ugly of that first deal. Welcome back, 402. It's your host here, Carolyn with a K, and I've got another guest, Holly McCormick, who is an eternal entrepreneur, gypsy soul, mother of two boys, and a gig economy expert, aka how can she game the system to never work a W-2 again? So welcome, Holly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So we're going to jump right into it, starting off with the Kiss Me segment, because she's got a lot of experience, so we just got to blaze through these questions. So what was the first album that you purchased? Oh my gosh, I've been trying to remember this as I've been listening to your your podcast. Um, I I, I was going to say New Kids on the Block, but I think that was the first concert. I Like for some reason, I'm sure I bought, because I'm of the tape and record generation, but I my first CD, I'm gonna go with that. Was was U2, the Joshua Tree U2. Nice. Was, I had my own little boombox, and um, I actually DJ, so music is like my thing as well. So I love having that. Yeah, oh, that's so cool. I uh, don't DJ, and I, as a child, I actually hated U2. Um, I, I yeah, I know, but like you know, they've grown on me. But as a kid, I was anytime on MTV, right? That U2 came up, I'm like, oh, we gotta change the channel. My mom loved them though. Maybe that's why I didn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were super popular, which can be means they were overplayed. So that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really cool though that you're also a DJ. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, what was the biggest challenge that held you back from investing in real estate? The biggest challenge was not having a W2 job, honestly. You know, I've been a gig economy worker. Well, I was a stay-at-home mom before my divorce. So, you know, when I got divorced, I um, you know, was just recovering from that and living off of alimony and child support for about four and a half years trying to get my own business working. And then after that, I mean, I did go back into a W-2 for about six months, and it just was not me. Um, and so I've been a gig economy worker ever since um, the middle of 2000. And, uh, you know, just figuring out that there's other ways to qualify for loans was very intimidating and very nerve-wracking. But it happens. So I've done it for three, t- three times now. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's great because I think a lot of people that are tuning in – and even people that I personally know, like most of them have a W-2 job. So it's going to be really fun to kind of get your perspective on someone who's not in that field, right? Like, I think there are a lot of gig economy workers and we take them for granted because they don't have all- certain perks that like a regular full-time W-2 employee has. So this would be lots of fun. What is something yeah, new that you learned or did during the pandemic that others might not know about you? So, well, they might know this about me because one of my entrepreneurial attempts was bringing financial education forward. So I un- unfortunately, but fortunately, got involved with this network marketing company in the financial industry, which I do not recommend really any network marketing, like even as a gig economy person, not a fan of them. 
Um, it was called Revolution Financial Management. WFG World Financial Group is, is the bigger umbrella. So definitely stay, stay away from them. But it sparked an interest in financial education, which I, I had from college. I have a business degree and I almost went finance with my major. Um, but for a few other reasons, I did not. So it was something that was already sparked in me, but it just, I, I took it so much deeper and it's really helped me with my real estate investment as well. Um, so I was attempting to grow a, a company or um, an education company and, and do insurance. I, I, sold li- I still have my license to sell life insurance. Um, and then after I left that company, I did that like June of 2020 and left the company in January of 2021. Um, I got involved with how to if your listeners know about infinite banking or um, I'm familiar with infinite banking, but the 402 might not be. So if you could explain that, that'd be great. Absolutely. So essentially infinite banking, uh, what I actually call it as the and asset, which I'm trained with better wealth company um, in order to help people understand it. And it's taking um, your money and helping you make your own bank out of it so that you don't necessarily have to go to the bank to get loans for your down payments or your real estate deals. Um, And it uses properly designed, this is so important, properly designed whole life insurance companies with mutual insurance companies, which means that they're paying dividends. Um, And there's only a few of those out there. So a lot of people are touting this. A lot of people are selling it. So I just want to make sure your listeners know, like you, you really want to make sure you know that the agent knows what they're doing to write these policies. Um, And it, Basically, what happens when we write these policies for this infinite banking system is we lower the cost of insurance as much as possible in a few different ways so that we can use the cash value, which is the savings account that's tied to the whole life product, um, and and multiply that so we can stuff as much cash into that cash value as possible. Um, and then the whole idea is that you never touch that cash again unless you know you absolutely have to, because the beauty of it is you can actually take a loan against that cash value, and that loan um, and that cash value is actually the collateral for that loan. So it's it's just this beautiful thing that allows you to kind of just bypass the whole banking system and, and create your own bank for yourself. That that was a great and very clear explanation. What would you say? was the like is there a waiting period in between once you have the cash value in so i know where you're going with yeah like how long do i have to wait for my cash value to appreciate right so that i actually can access it so um it depends on the company it depends on how your agent writes this and again this is why it's so important your agent is trained in how to do this properly and the reason a lot of agents a don't know about it or b don't write them is because they actually lower their commissions by quite a bit in order to write these policies cuz that's where the huge cost of insurance comes in a lot of times is covering your insurance agent's commission up front so just a little insider tip there um so the company I went with for my own policy and then I was writing for other people was uh, Guardian and literally the next day. Um, it's not 100% cash value because there is a little bit of a gap because you're paying. So, for example, let's say we put $10,000 into a policy for year one. You might have you know anywhere from 75 to 95% cash value available because the other percentage of that is paying for the life insurance because it is a life insurance product, Right. Um, but again, if you have the cash to make these, these, uh, 
life insurance policies work, then usually you can see your break even point somewhere between year five and seven. And then it just like skyrockets from there. Mm. Oh, that's great. So, mm-hmm. okay. Thank you for that little tip and piece of education. I think the 402 would definitely appreciate it. What is your favorite quote? Oh, my favorite quote. Yes. Okay. Um, I don't really, I don't have a favorite quote. I think it depends on what season of my life I'm in. But right now I'm sitting, like I'm very, <laughs> the gypsy soul of me, like I'm very esoteric. I used to be, say that I was very deeply spiritual. Now I just say I'm, I'm very deep and esoteric, um, is just kind of this idea and this would go a totally different direction that, you know, humans, we really like to have formulas, i.e. quotes that are formulas, um, to help us control the negative or, you know, what we would say chaos in the world. Um, you know, whether it be prayer or law of attraction and my unconscious patterns or all of these things. And it's like, Hmm. You know, life is just chaotic and we just kind of have to learn to deal with it. And to me, that's like one of the deepest spiritual lessons that I've learned on this planet is like, well, you know, I, I, I don't really have control. I, you know, there's no magic formula, no magic prayer. There's no, um, you know, beating up myself, trying to unlock all these unconscious patterns to the point where I'm ever going to control all of it. So yeah. yeah, I think it's more of the thought of that and, and following that thought has kind of been my favorite thing lately. Hmm. That's awesome. So where would you where are you currently based and where are you actively investing? I'm currently based in the Fort Worth area, the Dallas Fort Worth area, and this is where I'm investing in my own hometown. Um, I do have hopes of I just moved here from Nashville and I loved it over in Nashville. I had to move here for family reasons. Um, so I do hope to, to get back into Nashville market. Um, but that might be more of a rental arbitrage for short term rental. So not so much an investment. So tell us what was your first deal? (laughs) So my first deal, I have kind of two first deals and that's what we were talking about before we got on. Um, my first deal was a home that I bought when I moved from California to Tennessee and I was not one of those super rich could pay cash because I sold a home in California type. I was a divorced stay at home turned single mom um, who worked in the gig economy. Right. And I just happened to have enough left over from my divorce to put a down payment down. Um, and, you know, didn't know if I would qualify because I didn't have a full time job. I just moved states and my income was based very, you know, much on the state that I was in or on the city I was in because it was doing Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. Um, but I, in the Lyft car, so this is the great thing about the gig economy, in the Lyft car, I met a realtor and she's like, oh, you should just talk to a couple of my lenders and see if you can qualify. So I will tell you, to be honest, the first lender I call, um, I talked with, I was very bluntly honest um, and like probably overshared a little bit of my financial situation. <laughs> and not that I'm telling people to lie by any stretch of the imagination, but I learned what not to say. And then I went to the second lender and kind of, you know, because I also knew if I could get into a home that was properly set up for me to do short-term rental, I would have no issue making the mortgage payment because I just left California where I was making a 3300 a month without utilities rent payment. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
I knew like, you know, the mortgages I was looking at for Tennessee were only like, you know, somewhere between 12 and 1500. So I'm like, I don't think I'll have any problem with that. Right. So I just knew. So yeah, so I learned what to say, what not to say. And then because I did Uber and Lyft and, you know, it was always in different neighborhoods. And so I started to really get a feel for the Nashville land. And I loved that. And there was an area just south of Nashville, a lot of people might know, called Franklin, Tennessee. Um, and I was in this neighborhood calling on a rental. And the, the gentleman said, well, don't go further up into the neighborhood because it's not a good good part of the neighborhood. And I'm thinking, mm. You know, I'm not I'm not going to get into like who this guy was, but I could kind of tell that we probably had different takes on what neighborhoods were good and what weren't. So I put on my Redfin app and saw a home at the back of the neighborhood and I went and checked it out. It happened to be like I have a, a sliding glass door again. <laughs> I'm telling you all the things that you probably should not do. But I had a sliding glass door that was open. It wasn't locked. And I sneaked in. It was a two-story. And I could see that the bottom would be perfect for Airbnb. Um, it had an open slate room where I could turn it into the kitchen. And so that's um, – and it had its own entry, which was what the the county that I was in, um, Williamson County in Tennessee – required in order to do Airbnb. So I'd been checking on all of the requirements to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, so I saw that house. I mean, it was the only home I made an offer on and we almost didn't get it because the agent didn't think that my agent's offer was real and valid. So she took another, <laughs> another um, couple's offer before mine, even though I think ours was in first. Um, and it just turned out that the offer that they'd made was contingent on the house they're selling, which didn't sell. And so within like three hours, I went from thinking it was not mine to having it back open and then having it be mine. Um, yeah. And, and then it was just amazing. It went, you know, I had, you know, a little bit of a difficult time getting the ball rolling and then 2020 happened. But then last year, 2021 was an amazing year for the short term rental business. So it was it really paid off. Yeah. So then can you talk to us a little bit about the financials, like how much you, and then kind of go into the loan aspect, because you said after you talked to the initial officer, loan officer, you learn what not to say. And then, you know, what were terms that you were able to get? Um, mm hmm. Um, and I don't even remember exactly what it was that I learned what to say and not to say. That is a little hazy. It was probably somewhere around, um, you know, because I was I was still getting child support at that point in time, which wasn't going to last. And so at, at the amount it had been in California, and that's what they were really qualifying me on, right? Not so much of my own income. <laughs> um, so I had to fight them to get to use like 70% of my own income wow. in order to qualify because I needed a little bit more money too. Um, but that being a W-2 versus a non, being a gig economy, right? So there's something that people could do called bank statement loans, which, you know, is, like, is really good for self-employed because then they go through and it's a lot more work for you and for the loan. Um, it's not the loan officer, but whoever is helping you get through the escrow or the loan process because uh, you'll have to go back through like 12 months of loan documents to show that you have income. But it's a method and it's a way. Um, it was like a full-time job for about two weeks trying to get all my paperwork together for that home in Franklin. Um, I ended up getting, the only thing I would qualify for was a five-year variable arm. 
So my rate was like, you know, at the time in 2019, I think it was like 4.25 or 4.5. I can't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, I put 20% down. Uh, here's another a tidbit. I'm sure you've had other listeners, but I was able to pull $10,000 out of my um, 401k or IRA. It was my IRA, actually. I think 401k is very depending on if your employer allows that. Uh, but I had an IRA, was able to pull $10,000 out tax-free without a penalty in order to use it because I still, even though I bought a home with my ex, it'd been more than 10 years and that was under a different name. <laughs> <laughs> so I just happened to fall through all of the loopholes, legal loopholes for getting that $10,000 out um, to make that down payment. Um, and it was 4.25. And then my monthly was like 1460 or something like that on the house. So it was really affordable, right? And then I turned the basement into a two bedroom with kitchen um, rental unit. And started it at like 119 a night. And by the time I left Tennessee, I was getting anywhere from probably 145 to 165, depending on how many people stayed, what the events were. Um, so I don't remember exactly how much I made the first year. Last year, uh, and I rented a couple different ways. So I rented the basement as my full-time unit, right? Um, and then I would put the the in the upstairs where I lived, which was a three bedroom, one bath, full kitchen. It was beautiful. I would put that just like on the weekends or when I would travel, which wasn't super often, um, to see if I could capture some some more money there. And um, I worked all weekends, so it didn't matter to me if I was staying in a hotel. And then um, I also, towards the end of the year, started renting just a room to like somebody from Furnished Finder, which is a traveling nurse usually could be a professional relocating. So I was using more of the space because in the winter, a lot of the Airbnb short-time rental just goes, whoops, it, it just slows down. Like I have no business right now and it's a little scary. Um, so, but I I made about 30 or 31,000 just doing that. And I didn't even optimize the home as much as I could have. I've learned other techniques that I could have done more. Um, but some of it was also Williamson County had some restrictions on how I could rent my house. Um, but yeah, so I more than doubled my my yearly mortgage last year. Oh, that's and so it was great. a great, it's a great, like I just can't, house hacking is not for everyone, but I just can't speak highly enough of it for people that are nervous about taking on a home, right? Because there's a lot of responsibility with taking on a home. And there's like so many beautiful things you can do with house hacking. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. So um, you said that you redid the entire basement and turned it into a two bedroom? I didn't have to redo anything really in the basement. I mean, I put in like ceiling fans. I had a few touch-ups to do. I mean, they'd really remodeled the house for me and they left. Like I actually got to meet the flipper because she came over after I bought the house and we were walking through. And um, But there was a just a blank room that the laundry went in and I was like totally big enough to put a kitchen in there. So what I did, because again, I'm, you know, single mom, just trying to survive, like didn't have tons of money to invest in putting a real kitchen in there. So I put a utility, like a laundry sink for the sink. Um, I bought my, you know, utility, uh, my, my washer dryer and my fridge from like a secondhand store. So I got them each for like a hundred, 150 bucks, um, and a stove, sorry. And I stove. So I did pay for the electrical to be able to put a stove in there so that they had that available, right. For longer stays. 
And then um, I found an island at um, Habitat Restore, which is kind of like Goodwill, but a little bit better for like 150 bucks. That was just this big, beautiful island. And now I'm using it in my new home. So that's kind of fun. Um, and then like I have this, like I love to repurpose things. So I took in a lot of the closet doors off of that that house in Franklin because they were like the fold out ones and they just, the floor, you know, the floor plan, like the f- footprint just didn't make sense with these doors coming out. So I take the doors off and I repurpose those as like the counter in the in that kitchen. And I just got, bought some beautiful wooden like shelves at Ross or TJ Maxx or something and put the door on top of that. So I just made a makeshift kitchen that worked. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, after you had that great experience, right, it sounds like you got really fired up into real estate and doing more of that. So tell us about your more recent purchase. Yeah. So from there, it became really evident towards the end of last year, early this year, that I really needed to move to Dallas, like I said, for some family reasons. Um, And I really debated about selling the home or keeping it to do short-term rental, refinancing it, because I was coming up on three, three and a half years of that arm. And if I didn't People don't know what an arm is. That means after that five or 10 or 12 year, it, it's a variable, right? So I would have gone up to like seven and a half percent or whatever it is, like two years from now. Um, so I was either going to refinance or sell. Um, and I didn't have quite enough knowledge, even though I'd been in the short term rental industry for nine and uh, at that point, seven. No, I mean, it was pretty much nine years because it was right before I moved here. Because uh, I did that in, in California as well. I rented my spaces in California and house hacked. Um, but I hadn't found all the different tools. Like I knew being on the different blogs that the biggest thing was how do you find your maintenance people and your cleaners to take care? And this home in Tennessee, you know, had a half basement, which means a lot of humidity. I'd had a black mold issue with some guests there before that cost me about 6000 bucks. Yeah, that was a learning experience. Um, and so I just felt really like iffy about, you know, keeping the house and letting other people manage it. Um, cause I hadn't found the groups that I was in now. Uh, so I did sell the home. I sold it for a great profit <laughs> and, um, had my sights actually on buying, not just this home, but also, um, a property or in Orlando with the proceeds and, and the Orlando, um, one fell through, uh, the, you know, this is just some of the setbacks you hit, right? Like, so the Orlando one fell through this house. I had to do, even though it was flipped, I had to do a few more things just to make it a little bit nicer. Um, and it had a detached garage and I thought I was going to flip the detached garage into another separate unit so that I'd have, you know, shared space in here and then a separate one or two bedroom unit out in the garage. Cause it's a pretty big garage. Um, and then, I mean, I don't, I mean, it was nerve wracking. This is why, like, I can understand people don't want to go through the house buying process, um, especially when it's your own personal home, because it is, is nerve wracking. Um, it was a little bit easier, I would say, to get qualified this time because I had such a big year between Uber and Airbnb last year. Um, so the income really helped me. But again, because I was moving, they wouldn't qualify the Airbnb income. So that's 30000 off the top that I couldn't use. Um, and I think they still took the Uber and Lyft. They did still take the Uber and Lyft. And this is, I'm talking for a conventional loan, which again, I wish I would not have done honestly for this home. Um, what it came down to is initially I did not qualify, um, when I was going through underwriting. So I qualified with the loan officer. 
we went through two separate homes. The first home I didn't end up staying with, we got this home and the loan officer, you know, said, okay, we're good. You know, starting all my real paperwork together to go through underwriting. And, um, the underwriter came back and said, you know, like, I don't know, five days before we're supposed to close, you're not qualified. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, your, your loan officer is everything. And I unfortunately would not go with this loan officer again. Um, not to say that he did anything necessarily wrong, but I just don't know that we worked the best together. Um, and what he came back with it and is if I put 40% down, paid off my car, which I had about 16 left on my car, and I had about three or $4,000 on 0% interest for like another year. If I paid all of that, and I could because I'd made such a windfall from that first property, then I could get into this home. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was kind of stuck. Like I had to do it, right? Because I was in a legal contract to buy this house. Um, and then some other things happened where the, the seller almost didn't come through. So it was nerve wracking. Like we had to push back close by about three or four days because there was like also some like homestead taxes that weren't dealt with. Um, I don't know that I would ever want to go through that process again. It was, it was really nerve wracking, but we, I made it, um, my payment on this one. I mean, I think, you know, interest rates from the, cause this was back in January. I started looking, um, and they were like in the low threes. I think we closed at like 4.25 and that was locking it in like the 30 days before we closed. Right. So in a month, the rate went up like a point. It was insane. So th- can I just ask you, right, because you've mentioned that, you know, you went through this divorce and then you move. So for some, you know, why did you or did you have any concerns when you were looking to do Airbnb about safety or sharing a space, you know, because you're your mom and you have kids? Of course. So I don't do it when my kids are here. Generally, I've, I've never done it when my kids are here. So I um just so people know, I had 50-50 back in California, 50-50 custody. Sorry, I should clarify. So that means I had my kids a certain amount of days, and then they went to their dads, and then they came back to me. So it was split custody. And so I would only rent the space when they weren't there. And so that's and that's why I loved Airbnb, because unlike Furnished Finder or other like midterm housing, I could put just the specific dates I needed to use or I had to use for that rental. And, you know, and, and Silicon Valley, like I was always rented. I mean, I just, it was, I don't know how I survived out there, but it was because of that. I was just always rented. Um, safety wise, I didn't really, I mean, because I'd been doing Uber and Lyft, I think I felt really comfortable in this gig economy. Um, and, you know, Airbnb, and now I know so much more, but Airbnb touts that they do all this background verification, right? Um I've gotten a lot smarter. I will tell you there are some things that's this is not the right place in time that I've learned about Airbnb and what they do for hosts and what they do for guests. And, and there's a lot of conflict between those two. Um, what I have set up here is every single door in this house has a smart lock on it. And so I can lock myself in my bedroom at night <laughs> and everybody else can lock themselves in their bedroom at night. So that's really, really cool. Um, I will say Airbnb, you know, just launched some new new things that came out for hosts in the last like three or four weeks that really make it a lot safer. Um, if you're going on different platforms, a lot of times they don't offer the house hacking. You have to have the whole entire home available. And there's um, 
when I do offer the whole entire home, I do have a third party that people have to go through that both verifies them so I can get a background check. Um, and if I want to deny them, they'll do all the legal stuff that I have to do in order to deny them. Um, but they'll also cover me for any damage or liability up to a million dollars. So, and it's like 1925 a night that I pass on to the guest. So, yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to protect yourself. And again, I mean, that's a certain amount of trust, but I go back to Caroline, like, you know, just always thinking about how can I stay at home? So I have the most flexibility for myself and my boys. Um, Women have been renting their homes, their extra space for thousands of years. Like this is how a lot of mothers have survived. Um, And so I just am like, yeah, this is, this is the the heritage, I guess you want to say. I'm I'm keeping it alive. Yeah. And um, with all that said, right, what would be a piece of advice that if you could start all over again, that you would give to yourself um, if you had that opportunity to try again? Um, I'm still sitting with this one. I really, really wish I would have kept the home in Franklin, um, and just refinanced it and taking that money gotten here and just kind of rented for a few months instead of going through the process to get this house, um, and figure myself out. Cause when I was in the process of moving and trying to decide all of that back in January, February, that's when I decided to really go full in on the short-term rental and real estate investment. I hadn't made that decision consciously before then. And I didn't consider myself a real estate investor, even though I was doing short-term rental for nine years at that point. Mm -hmm. So that I just didn't have like, it was like a month after I moved here, I found this group called thanks for visiting um, they have an amazing podcast. This is actually how I found you because Tanya, who was on the show a couple a weeks ago or months ago, is in that group. And there was just so many tools and te- tips and techniques and stuff that I've learned since May that I'm like, oh, if I would have just had this like three or four months earlier. I could have stayed with that property. And the reason being is, A, I loved, my, I loved that property. I loved the space in Franklin, Tennessee. It was great. I was like two miles walking downtown Franklin, which is a host, Civil War historic city itself. So it's amazing. Um, but also it was a cash cow. It was a cash cow. And coming into the recession, you know, that we're kind of having, it's not officially, you know, it hasn't ever, I think, officially been announced yet. Um, and into the winter and stuff like that, starting two new properties like I did was, is, was not a good business decision. So I'm going to be carrying quite a bit of mortgage probably for two or three months. So, yeah. Well, like they say, hindsight is always 2020. Yeah, Um, totally. This is great. You know, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and kind of give us a little taste of the challenges that you encounter as someone who yeah. works in the gig economy. Um, but thanks again for your time. And I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Did Sorry, did you want to talk about the private lending? Because that was oh, the third. Yes, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so the private lending is, um, well, basically about the end of September, early October, I've been trying, so the financial education, this all comes together. I was, I've been trying to pull out the remainder of my IRA um, and of course want to avoid as much taxes as possible. So one of the strategies that you might want to buy real estate for is to help avoid 
you know, is a tax strategy. So I decided <laughs> I'm going to go buy a new home because you have tons of expenses, you know, business expenses, right, with buying a new home. Plus, you could do something called a cost segregation, which brings forward a lot of the depreciation for the home into the first year or fast forwards it, right? So it would give me the, the you know, negative side so I could pull out all this essential income from my IRA. Um, and so I was running around trying to find, like I found a new realtor who I absolutely adored and was going to go hard money, but hard money was like 14%. And he would, because the homes I needed, you know, at this point I need the homes to be pretty much ready to go in order to start making that profit. I don't want to have to do a complete flip. Um, and so he was only going to give me 70%. So pretty much I'd have to bring, you know, 25, 30% of the home's value on my own. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I had, again, you know, if I pull the IRA out, I have this, but do I want to do that? Do I want to be like that much equity in the home? Because I'm really trying to get more to like, let's use other people's money. <laughs> and then I'll use my money as other people's money for other people. Right. Cause that's kind of the way that you do it. That's the way you create your own bank um, as well. And so I, you know, was just going down all like talking to a whole bunch of other lenders. And that's the thing. And Tanya says this all the time in the group is like, don't stop talking to people. Like, don't stop with your first or second lender. Keep talking. Keep asking questions. Because then you get more educated on what are the other better questions to ask. And you then keep, I'd love it if you would share this episode with a friend. Is kind of, it and is kind I'd of difficult really because it's like not something where you can just go to a Google page and be like, who's my private so lender? Um, oh, here is one tidbit, though. So if you go to, I think it's called Hard Money, or you just want to get on your first and I can send you the email, Caroline, so you can show it up with the show notes. But what I did is I got on for listening. I love all of you, and I will see you next Friday. And I just posted, like, who's who are who's doing private lending for real estate in the DFW area? And I got a couple more names that way. Um, so that is a little tip or trick that you could do. Um, you could get on your Facebook group pages, you know, get into your real estate investment groups, your local ones, the RIAs is what they call them and start just asking questions. Um, I kind of just fell into it. So I can't remember exactly what happened, but my real estate agent said, well, hey, just call my lender because he's really good and just see what he can do. And I knew the story was going to be, A, you're, you have too much debt to income ratio right now because you don't, and you don't have a full-time job, right? Which are the two things that they look at for conventional loans. And I'm like, but you look at me and I'm a hustler. I have tons of liquid cash right now. Um, so I qualify in other ways that a private lender is going to like. So I talked to this regular conventional lender. He's like, I can't do anything for you, but I have a woman who I work with. She does private lending out of her own IRA, like trust company. Um, let me put you in touch with her. And so that was how I got this for my real first investment property. Well, I guess third, but, and you know, not house hacking. So I won't be house hacking with that. Um, and you know, again, the house buying process is, is always stressful. And I don't, I don't know that it would ever not be stressful because you're dealing with a major investment, but we closed on the 15th, 16th of November, my cousin and I, who, um, did the design for it. It's called the Paisley. It's just, ah, it's so amazing. Um, and we just busted tail for about two weeks and I got it up on Airbnb, I think, a week ago? Yeah, I think oh. about a week ago. Congrats. Um, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of stress, but a lot of fun. Of course. So that's great. And um, it just goes to show that talking to more people 
even if they say no, they might know someone or have a resource that could be helpful to you. You just never know. Right. Just keep asking. Just keep asking. <laughs> so if the 402 is interested in connecting with you to learn about infinite banking or talking about, you know, how you as a gig employee have been able to buy property, like what's the best way for them to reach out or where are you digitally? Yeah, yeah. So my short term rental business is actually allergy friendly rentals. No, allergy friendly stays. <laughs> I own the URL rentals as well. Allergy friendly stays. So if you want to see my properties or you need any short term rental or midterm and the Fort Worth area, let me know, or you're interested in potentially hosting. Um, allergy friendly for me is really important because I can't do any of the chemicals um, in the like Glade scent plugins or the laundry detergents or the chemical cleaners. Um, and actually 40% of Americans are allergic to those things, even if they don't know it. Yeah. Wow. And this is why people stay at homes all the time. And they're like, oh, I had an allergy to the mold and it's not the mold. It's the uh, scents and everything in there. So um, I'm trying to build that awareness and get its own category on Airbnb as well and maybe be its own like online travel agency like Airbnb. Um, So that would be for the, you know, more of short term rental looking for consultation or hosting like what we call co-hosting. For the financial side, it would be Holly C. McCormick on Instagram. Um, and that would be the best way to get in touch with me. I have a website, but it's, it's like, yeah, I don't want to send people there right now. It's just, it needs to be completely revamped. Yeah. It needs to be completely revamped. And, um, and, and part, I will be honest, like part of why I'm doing the real estate and the short-term rental is to become independently cash flow like wealthy so that I can offer more of that financial education gratis or low income, like low cost, just because I'm so like, that's the real reason I decided to go this way, because I'm so passionate about people having the education for finances in their life. But I don't think it's something that, you know, most of us could afford to pay a lot of money for. Um, And so, yeah, so I'm hoping that the short term rental real estate business will fund that financial business in the future year. Well, thank you so much, Holly. And that's all, folks. That's all.